Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 119. We are getting hard and heavy uh, in these episodes from last week, this one and probably ones to come regarding very last days of Jesus's life. And last week we moved into this very tough discrepancy between the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke versus John concerning Jesus's last supper that he had with his disciples. There seems to be this discrepancy in the text that suggests there's some ambiguity on what day actually that Last Supper took place. Was it Passover Eve? Was it on Passover itself? And that has implications for the significance of the following day concerning his death. Like, did it happen on Passover? Did it happen during a Sabbath? If, If so... It seems like a violation of the Sabbath. Um, and so Paul laid out in our okie-dokie notes a, a nice table that's showing those Nissan dates uh, between Nissan 13, 14, and 15 concerning the time between the Last Supper, his death, and his resurrection. Um, and there was one thing that Paul and I talked about after we got done recording uh, last week's episode that I think... We should just take a moment to address that hopefully will bring more light to this discussion. If you can remember, Paul talked about this idea of the Yom Tov. Um, it is a special Sabbath compared to the normal weekly Sabbath that happens every week dur- during the year. And on the Yom Tov, it's like a double Sabbath. Yom Tov Sabbath actually starts Thursday at sundown, and within Jewish culture, you adhere normally like you would do on the Sabbath, actually starting on that Thursday evening. It would continue to Friday. Friday evening would come, and then that would continue to your normal Sabbath day. So it would almost be like two Sabbath days back to back. And why that has importance is because of this discrepancy with the Last Supper that Jesus and his disciples could have been performing a Passover meal on a Sabbath evening because it potentially could have been a Yom Tov Sabbath evening on Thursday. So I don't know if those details that I added helped the discussion, but I wanted to bring it to light so that, Paul, you could respond, add some more detail, and maybe we can add another piece to this puzzle that is hard for people of the text to wrestle with. Yeah, you know, and this is always going to be hard to wrestle with. We've got the idea of, oh, but wait a minute, the day begins at sundown. So when you are saying things like Thursday evening and Friday evening, you know, if you were in Israel and in uh, if you were in Israel a couple thousand years ago, you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, you're saying Friday morning, right? Or Saturday morning, right? <laughs> so there's that confusion. It's starting the day. And also, maybe just one little bit of clarity 
a Yom Tov Sabbath could occur on any day of the week. I mean, it could be a Yom Tov on a Tuesday. So then you wouldn't have two two Sabbaths in a row, but you'd have a special Sabbath on a Tuesday because just because of the way the holiday schedule works. The point is, a special Sabbath, a Yom Tov Sabbath, is exactly like a weekly Sabbath in terms of the rules, what you can and can't do, and all those kinds of things. It's just that it's it's added because of something special going on with the holiday calendar, the annual festival calendar for Israel. So in this particular case, it would turn out, depending on whose account your your thinking is more correct, you could end up with two Sabbath days in a row. And and let's use now Jewish terminology. It could have been the Friday and the Saturday. Or the other way around, it could have just, they both could have fallen on the Saturday. It was the weekly Sabbath and it was the Yom Tov Sabbath on the same day. And so that's why this is just so confusing and such trouble. But once Samuel and I, boy, man, when we got talking after the episode, it was like, so sorry we hit the stop button on the recording because <laughs> it was such a good topic. I didn't realize that maybe we hadn't been as clear as we could have been. So I don't know. Between what Samuel said, what I just said, what we said last episode, hopefully you get the idea that, you know, all of this is simply adding to the confusion. So there you go, Samuel. That all help? Oh, yeah. Any further comments, questions on that? I don't think so. All right. Well, hey, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> nothing, nothing deep here. <laughs> now we, uh, it's good. It's good because, I mean, we can only hope that somehow, some way, I mean, this is a lot of podcasts, a lot of hours, you know, people would be listening to whatever. Hopefully it's actually worth it because it does, in fact, bring some clarity around some issues, at least here and there. So it's good. It's good. All right, shall we try to go on, Samuel? I think we shall. All right, so here we are. Uh, we had just done a very tiny little snippet from John. I think it was a single verse, whatever. And now we're going to actually sneak back to the synoptics. We're looking at Matthew chapter 26, verse 20, Mark verse uh, chapter 14, verse 17, and John... I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, where's just too much going on in my head? And Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 16. I'm going to go ahead and read from Luke, because obviously it's a little longer, contains a little more information. It says this, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Okay. <laughs> There's probably, well, see, that seems clear. Wait a second. That's no longer clear. Uh, stuff like that popping into your brain while we're going. But let's see what we got here. Obviously, we're currently reading about a Passover Seder. I mean, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. We're in the Synoptic Gospels. Jesus had sent Peter and John to prepare this meal, and now it was time to begin. They're, they all kind of, right, they take their place, they, they get seated uh, around the table, they actually recline 
around the table. It's very different than what we're used to. The table, I don't know, you might think of it as kind of sort of U-shaped. So you got, I don't know, pick a number, uh, five along one side, five along the other side, and then where like the bottom of the U would be. Maybe you got a few more people, whatever. And people, they, they lean and I see different artist depictions. Some maybe think it's it's outside of the table. Some maybe think they actually have cushions and they're on the table, whatever. But but they're reclining, sort of leaning on one side around the table. And Jesus expresses how much he has desired to eat. And he says this Passover, and I think it's completely fair. It's almost difficult to argue against. He means this Passover meal with his apostles. He's, he's talking about a Seder here. And, and so he also throws in the, the, the little extra bit about him suffering. Okay, he wants to do it before he suffers. But then Jesus also says, and man, this is where people, they get a little confused or they argue or whatever. He also says that he won't eat it. He's earnestly desired to eat it, and he won't eat it. Huh? <laughs> what, what? I mean, what's he trying to say? He adds, not until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. Now, I don't know. I guess it depends on you, but, but for this to make any logical sense, I, I think that it's, it's pretty obvious. We should understand him to mean that, yeah, he, he is going to go ahead and eat this one, but he's not going to eat another one until the kingdom. And then we might even think of like the Messianic banquet or whatever. But I guess to be fair, the underlying Greek is a little bit troublesome. And, and you will see some translations actually help, right? They actually insert the word again. I won't eat it again or, you know, something similar for clarity. But some don't. And, and then because of this, the, the, the little bit of trouble in the Greek some in an attempt to try to reconcile the synoptics with John. Some read this as something more like, well, I really wanted to eat a final Passover with you, but I won't, or maybe you could say I can't, because I'll be dead tomorrow. I'm going to eat this meal with you instead. And that, that's their way of saying, well, John isn't presenting it as a Seder. Maybe this is the way we look at the synoptics and we can say, oh, see, they're not really eating one either. He wishes it was, but it wasn't. Yeah, okay, I don't know, maybe. But as we continue the, the text that follows, I kind of feel like that really makes it impossible. It, the, the following text makes it abundantly clear, abundantly obvious that Jesus is participating in this meal, and it has all the earmarks of a Seder. So, I mean, we're telling the story, you know, we're acknowledging there's a there's disagreement and argument here, but we're, we're telling the story, like, dude, we're in the synoptics, this is a Seder. That's just, we're, we have to live with this, this problem, this discrepancy. Now, also notice, he said that he wouldn't eat it again. He didn't say that no one will eat it again, the apostles wouldn't eat it again, the apostles shouldn't eat it again, that no one should ever eat it again. He didn't say that. He said that he wouldn't eat it again. And historically, from everything that we know, now we don't have like super explicit detail, but even in our very own Bible scriptures, plus some stuff outside it, the disciples ate this Passover meal 
every year for the rest of their lives. Now, it did get modified after the temple was destroyed. We can even see that in in modern-day Judaism. But this is just to say he didn't somehow fulfill Passover on the cross so that it no longer is relevant or, or anything like that. A lot of people want to look at this story and say, oh, he fulfilled it. The fact that the Jews still eat the Passover is silly and dumb. No, it's not. They do what they do because they are in an eternal covenant with God. It goes until this heaven and earth pass away, and they do the right thing. Jesus didn't fulfill it so that it was removed or, or no longer necessary or whatever. So just saying that out loud. So, ah, what, a, what else can I say? There's so much I want to talk about here, Samuel. He says, for example, I will not eat it, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom, kind of raises the question, what is it? So so many see this as a reference to, I mentioned this a second ago, about the messianic banquet. And that, okay, that's really cool imagery. And some older Jewish writings have even described the messianic banquet in terms that sound Uh, You could say very much like a Passover, exactly like a Passover Seder, whatever. So this is a very real possibility, and and I I think that's a very common, popular one. Some, Some actually notice that there is a temple in the kingdom. You read, like especially from Ezekiel, maybe some from Zechariah, other places. It's built by Messiah when he returns. So there's a temple in the kingdom, and they think that the festivals will continue to be celebrated as a memorial. And I, for one, based on the whole of the scriptures, I actually don't see a problem with that. I I think that is kind of obvious. That should be the way it happens. And that's an image that we all need to get in our heads. When you've got the kingdom, okay, it's here on earth, this earth, in this age, Jesus comes back, thousand years, and reigns. And it's, it, there's a new temple. There's a, it, let's call it the third temple. We don't, we don't know that there will be any other, so we'll call it the third temple. And if you've got the temple, it even raises the possibility that there will be sacrifices, etc. What are you talking about? Well, if they're going to eat something like a Passover Seder, they're going to they're gonna have to sacrifice in the temple, right, etc. So things like that. And then finally, uh, there are some who see things like this idea of being saved from death or the idea, uh, and we're we're relating to the Passover meal, right? They were saved from death uh, in the the Exodus, if you will. They are strengthened for their redemption and salvation that was coming. Those ideas, and, and there's like a true and final redemption that will occur in the end. Those are the, the more relevant points. It's, it's those things that are going to be fulfilled in the kingdom. And so, I don't know. But what they're trying to do is, is take the importance away from the meal and, and put the importance on the things that the meal represents. And, well, it's all true, and it's really good to notice and talk about, but, I mean, Jesus was very specific talking about eating 
And so if you want to focus on those really important points, you're, you're kind of taking away some of Jesus's very own words. And so anyway, I, I would say all of these so people are trying to figure out, well, what is it? I, I won't eat it again until the pit. Well, let's go with something of a combo. That's, that's kind of a, a pattern of ours, is it not, Samuel? Yeah. <laughs> we see all this arguing and, hey, let's, let's pick the few little things that we like, put them all together. The true meaning of Passover will indeed be fulfilled in the kingdom. I mean, we will actually be saved from death, and there's more the permanent sense in that, the, the, the real final sense. Uh, there, there is this idea of being strength, strengthened for final redemption, you know, all those things. Yeah, that is all true. Therefore, we will celebrate, and, and we will eat that Passover. And I think, reasonably, the other festivals with sacrifices in this new temple, along with King Jesus, not just suffering Messiah Jesus, but conquering King Messiah Jesus, right? And maybe we'll even use, I don't know, the same facilities, the same tables, all those things that we used from that messianic banquet for all the other festivals, all those kind of things. I'm just saying a lot of people argue about a lot of different things with what this seemingly simple little verse is, and and we're going with, yeah, it's a great big fulfillment, and yeah, you know what? It's just a good old-fashioned meal. So there you go. What do you think? What do you got, Samuel? Not too much other than for those who are listening to this podcast who are not Jewish, i.e. you're Gentile, if you have never performed a Passover Seder before, Paul and I both have with our families, and we would highly, highly encourage you to find resources to be able to do that some year because it is so enlightening and gets you in touch with the Jewish roots of your faith, and it just adds more detail to that holiday to showcase God's redemption of his people, and there's just so much imagery that is evoked concerning Messiah Jesus himself. Um, And one place that we can point to a resource that could help First Fruits of Zion has, I'm not sure how readily available it is, but they have a kind of like a step-by-step Passover Seder guide. Yeah, makes it easier for people who are unfamiliar with it. Paper or electronic format that you can access and like, it tells you all the food that you need to get, and it yeah. has stuff that you read out loud together as a family. It's, it's just really good. I've I've grown a lot from those Passover seders that I've done the past two years. Yeah. Yeah, the important thing—okay, uh, sh- we should say this out loud. We're not telling anybody to become Jewish, right? Mm-hmm. It, we don't do it because we think that we're, you know, becoming Jewish or anything. Do, we are Gentile as Gentile can be. We just are. But— why did they do it every single year, generation after generation, century after century, and continue to do it? Why? Because it is reminding you of truths from the story. It's helping you relate to the actual redemption work that God is working in creation. So it's just an experience thing. And you know what? If you did it I don't know, every year until you died, or you just did it one year, or you did it, you know, every few years, or you just did it for a few years and quit, whatever. 
it's just a good experience. And I, I don't know. I think Samuel's right. I think you would not only enjoy it, I think it would, you would learn things through the experience. It's kind of neat. Mm-hmm. And from a Jewish side, it's commandment for them. Like the Torah oh, yeah. explicitly says, like, you need to perform this as an everlasting, I can't remember what the text says, covenant or remembrance. Yeah. Um, and for us as Gentiles grafted in, we need to look at those laws, the ones that we, within our context, have the capability to come alongside and potentially learn how to perform and carry out ourselves like of course the dietary stuff for gentiles isn't as important but if if we have the opportunity to be able to fulfill that commandment and get closer to the wisdom of god and the heart of god we should do that absolutely yeah if we were like uh we live out in the middle of nowhere so (laughs) surprise there are no jews out here (laughs) but if just pretend for a moment we lived in and around a community of Jews, and and say they were Messianic Jews, and they were they welcomed us in. Well, actually, dietary things would matter as we mm-hmm. entered into community. We we'll talk about that when we talk about things in the Book of Acts, whatever. But where we are, it's like yeah, you know, no community to be a part of, so it it doesn't have that same same level of relevance. But yeah. Anyway, good idea, Samuel. Glad you you recommended it. Uh, We're going to go on. We're looking at Luke chapter 22. This is verses 17 and 18. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Okay. Now, in a traditional Passover Seder, the more, uh, the more we know about first century practice, uh, it actually appears to be quite close in detail to even what they do now today. It's, it's, it's really quite amazing. So uh, anyway, in a traditional Passover Seder, there are four cups of wine. And I know if you're listening, you might be thinking, wow, that's a lot. And you're right. Yep. (laughs) I, for example, usually when it says take this cup, I usually do one sip. (laughs) I'm just not an alcohol guy. I never have been. Whatever. (laughs) But we get the idea. Each are taken at a specific time and with a very specific purpose and meaning. Now, having said that and looking at this text, it appears that this little section of scripture when it says and he took the cup and when he had given thanks he appears to be speaking of the first cup and this is really cool jesus would have done the traditional blessing he would declare uh, the holiness of the day and he would have pronounced a blessing over the wine and he would have pronounced the blessing of the festival day. And then the wine would be distributed to all of the participants. And uh, there's a lot, I don't want to repeat the whole thing, but I kind of thought just the, the simple one, the blessing over the, over the wine would have been something like, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. And 
everybody who was participating in all of these little meals all over the city of Jerusalem, they would have said basically the exact same thing. So here's Jesus doing, and I guess, again, it depends on which night you think this is, whatever, but you you, you get the idea. Jesus is doing what, what so many Jews are doing at the same moment, in the same place. They've done it across centuries, all that. It's just kind of cool. Now, because Jesus is the one who made the blessings, did the best, spoke the blessings, he was obligated to drink. I mean, that, that simply is the Jewish custom. And so therefore, when he says his little vow, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of vine, okay, we know that that would begin, let's just say, after the meal. And that's not weird or tricky or, or whatever. That, that's, that's super, super normal that he would have spoken this way. The same thing about not eating. So it really isn't, it isn't that weird from our perspective. Now, interesting side note, the way Jesus words his vow here, the, the words that he has selected, the way he's saying what he's saying, it's, it is like if we were alive in the first century and we were Jewish and we had heard this, we wouldn't have wondered. He was totally making a Nazarite vow. And so what do you do? You, you state the vow, and like in his part, I won't drink again. Very, very normal for a Nazarite vow. And you also state the term of the vow. Now, usually that was something more like a month or until the next festival or, you know, something. It was, <laughs> it was never very long comparatively. But Jesus says, until the kingdom comes. And in this sense, he, he's talking about his return. So you know, we talked about the now and the not yet part of the kingdom. He's, I think here, I think it's obvious he's referring to the not yet part of the kingdom when he returns and it's fully established here on the earth. So I won't drink again until the kingdom comes. It's a Nazarite vow. Now, I, I read a lot of things. I, I don't know that there's any super special meaning in that other than the fact that it was just a very, very Jewish thing to do. Now, Luke, uh, his, his, his verses that immediately follow this, they kind of make it appear that, that a bunch of things are happening all at once, but verses 19 and 20, the ones that follow, they actually fit with a much later part of the meal. And so, uh, we're actually going to slip some John in between here so we can see how, how that kind of fits together and maybe some others, but whatever. You get the idea. This little section, it appears to be a Seder meal and this appears to be the first cup. I just think that's awesome. And he's making a Nazarite vow. Not sure why that's awesome, but at least we know about it. And there you go. Nice. Anything, Sam? Uh, I do actually. Maybe this can be another seed I can plant for people to um, one day observe a Passover Seder themselves, uh, you'll know this detail, Paul. Within the Passover Seder, each time that a cup of wine is consumed, your tract, I guess, that's helping you... Well, I mean, <laughs> they wouldn't have had a tract back then, but for us following along, it it asks you, asks you to lean to, the, to your left when you drink the cup. <laughs> that's right. And 
<laughs> and you're and you're supposed to be doing this while you're reclining. And I just found this detail just a minute ago, and I think it's actually really cool um, because it makes me ask the question: like doing something like that during a Passover seder makes you ask a question: Why in the heck am I being asked to lean to my left right. while drinking this cup? And um, the the whole image and art of reclining laying down while eating and then leaning to the left um there are some allusions to freedom and aristocracy it's a a very noble type of image in terms of the manner in which you are eating and there's some rabbinic thought to say that performing the seder in this way showcases the freedom that the israelite people had you know once they were taken out of captivity from the oh, Egyptians yeah. that beforehand, you know, they weren't reclining while eating. They weren't in a place of nobility. They were brought as low as low can get. And now that they are out of that, God is asking them to treat themselves in a way to showcase that they are free from that captivity and that suffering, that oppression within this Seder itself. And in some ways you could tie that back to Jesus here and, in, in the same way that Israel was freed from physical slavery, physical captivity, and they performed the Seder, Jesus now is doing this Seder with his disciples, and you could say that there's some future allusion to what I'm about to do tomorrow is going to free you from spiritual slavery, from spiritual oppression, from sin and death, and yeah. you should continue to perform this Seder to remind you of the freedom that you have on a spiritual sense. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good, Samuel. So good. Yeah, and I, I don't know, full disclosure, the first time I tried to do a Passover Seder meal, follow a little, you know, booklet or whatever, and it started telling us, like, lean to the left, we had no idea what it was talking about. We 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 weren't relating it to reclining at table, No stories like you just told, Sam, nothing. We're just looking at it going... What are they even talking about? Lean to the left while you take a drink of wine? <laughs> we felt so dumb and confused. And you know what? Like you said, Sam, but that's awesome because it kind of pushes you to, to research. You go and look, well, why are we doing that? What, what's up with that? And, and you're going to find the next little bit and the next little bit and so many little things scattered all throughout that little meal that it, they're, they're neat. They're interesting. You learn things. It's good. So good call, Samuel. Good call. All right. So where are we going? Okay, we're going back to John. And this is John chapter 13. We're going to pick up at verse 2 and go through verse 5. Uh, well, let's just read. It says this. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, just to say it out loud, I'm sure somebody somewhere is going to argue with our placement. 
Is is this the moment when Jesus got up and did that? Was it after the first cup? You know, before whatever we? I don't know. This is, we're just trying to. We've seen other people try to put it here, and that kind of looked good to us. So that's what we're doing. So go with it. So and just to point out, we are now back in John. So when it says during supper, we need to get back in our head. This is not being presented as a Passover Seder meal. Okay, let's just notice it. Now, Luke had told us earlier that Satan had entered Judas. And, you know, we talked about the idea, well, is that possession or something like that? And we're like, well, you know, it could be. I mean, Jesus and and other, they seem to be okay with that kind of stuff. So John, though, says that Satan had put the idea of betraying Jesus into Judas's heart. So did he enter him, put the idea in, and leave? (laughs) Did he enter him, put the idea in, and he's still there? Whatever. Okay, we don't know. But we do know that Judas has his, you know, that moment of remorse later, regret later. So maybe Satan did enter and then go or something. I don't know. It's just interesting to look at and wonder about. We don't have the answers, but it's just neat to look at. Now, it also, it further identifies Judas Iscariot as Simon's son. That would be then Simon Iscariot. And the truth is, you know, we just don't really know anything more about this man, or not a lot reliably. But John tells us, hey, it's Simon Iscariot's son. And then the Satan that that Luke talked about, or the devil, uh, Diabolos, we would say, those words, uh, Satan, uh, Diabolos, they, they both mean pretty much the same thing. We're talking about an accuser. We're talking about an adversary, and the best image, at least for me, is a court of law. Let's say that you're in a court of law, and you know, you're the one who's in trouble, and you've got this, this prosecuting attorney, and he's just going after you. He's bringing up everything about you that he thinks proves that you're guilty, whatever. He is your accuser, and in the court, he is your adversary, and so that is a really good image of who the Satan or the devil is and how it is that he acts before God with regards to you. So, I don't know, it's good good imagery. And John tells us that Jesus is fully aware of everything that's going on in this situation. So, uh, I'm I'm sure, I don't have to say it, but I'm gonna. We're entering the climax of the story, okay? (laughs) And God has handed the whole thing over to Jesus, right? I mean, like, like, how could you say this? The fate of the world, the fate of mankind, the fate of everything. It's all in Jesus's hands. And, and think about this. At any point, Jesus could choose to do something other than God's will. It's all been given over to him. I mean, that that's an amazing amount of trust. Even I, I, Okay, I get it. Jesus is both man and God, whatever. But still, th- this is amazing because he's, he's walking this out in his humanity. And we know that Jesus does not choose to do something other than God's will. This is such an amazing and important part of the story. Jesus knows it is necessary for Scripture to be fulfilled. He will be the long-awaited king. He will have 
all authority. Some would argue he already has these things. He will be the instrument of God's faithfulness to Israel and God's faithfulness to all mankind. He he knows all of that. So all of that, I mean, you've got to get that image in your head. And then in this moment, what does Jesus decide to do? Serve like a slave. John just told us that God had given all things into Jesus's hands. I mean, in these moments, everything rested with him. And the first thing that Jesus does is lower himself, strip himself down to slaves' clothes. He wraps a towel around himself that he's going to use to dry their feet after washing their feet. He, he pours water and begins washing and drying the feet of his disciples, his apostles. And culturally, you got to know, this is something that only a slave would do. And in fact, I think it's fair to argue there, there was in some, some houses, some places, whatever, there's a bit of a hierarchy among the slaves. Well, in those cases, it would have been the, those slaves who were lower on the hierarchy. They were the ones who washed feet. Now, feet were, they, they were dusty, right? They, they, were, they were dirty. I mean, when people walked around, it was either barefoot or they were wearing something like we would think of modern day sandals. And, and so feet were always dusty and dirty. Now, in some sense, that's kind of good. It's better than being stuffed in a smelly old shoe and sweating and all those kind of things. It's not quite like that, but they were dusty and dirty. It was a messy job, Imagine what happens when you mix water with dust and dirt, Samuel. What do you get? You, you get mud. Yeah. And water, I mean, it has such a great habit of staying exactly where you want it to stay when you start working with it. Right, Samuel? <laughs> no, it gets everywhere. No. Right? It's a mess. So maybe, maybe, I mean, we are talking about Jesus. So maybe he was an expert at doing this and he never got a drop on himself. Or maybe he was just like anyone else, and you know what? This job that he's doing, he's stripped down, he's only got his undergarments on like a slave, and he probably ended up with his undergarment getting wet and dirty. Look at him, he's wet and dirty. So you just got to picture that maybe for uh, the rest of the meal, right? He's going to do this, he's going to get kind of kind of wet, kind of messy, and then he's going to put those clothes back on and continue going through the meal, whatever. It's just, it's an amazing picture of mm-hmm. this this God-man doing this thing. So I'm going to stop talking there because there's more text. We can talk more after that. What do you got, Samuel? Um, it's, I mean, first off, I just want to say that imagery is powerful to see the humility Jesus yeah. is showcasing lowering himself to elevate others and yeah. how that call is the the same for us to do in our own lives so i just wanted to state that first the second thing is within this discrepancy of what day this is actually happening and the within the possibility that this could be a sabbath meal um do you know within 
cultural Judaism, like with the, the leadership that was putting all those details in place of the things that you can and can't do on the Sabbath uh, in terms of violating it, would, if, if you had like a, a scribe or a Pharisee, an, an unhealthy one in this setting with Jesus, seeing him do this, would they have considered that a violation of the Sabbath from their eyes, him washing his disciples' feet? Would that have been considered a form of work that evening? Uh, yeah, uh, I wish at this moment I could think of a very specific thing. Remember, they had like the list of 39 rules or whatever. Mm-hmm. But right in this moment, you've kind of surprised me, so it all escapes me. You know how that happens? <laughs> I can't remember an explicit thing. Uh, so I'm going with just my gut feeling, and my gut tells me, oh, yeah, by all means, definitely would have been a violation. And so, you know, there's there's some work for our audience they can actually go look up the 39 mm. Jewish rules for Sabbath and figure out where that fits in. <laughs> but believe me, they were pretty darn creative. They shut out a whole bunch of stuff. So I'm going with, yeah, totally a violation. And I wanted to go yeah. back. Go ahead, Samuel. No, I was just going to say that that just continues the theme for Jesus in these instances where the cultural or the leadership side of things treats it as a violation, but... Jesus is still upholding that the Sabbath was made for the benefit and the good and the welfare of mankind. And in this case, he's in, in other instances when he healed on the Sabbath or etc. He was alleviating human suffering. And in this case, you could say he's elevating humanity in this sense by doing something that is a mundane and a dirty job to showcase the goodness and the love that's expressed between God and humanity. Yeah. 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 And this is, and I understand where you're, where you're going. Were were they actually doing some things on that special Sabbath or not or whatever? And that's, you know, that's part of the confusion here. It's like, yeah, look at some of the things he does. Look at some of the things they do. Could it really have been a Sabbath or whatever? So yeah, it's really important to bring these up. We have no idea. John, of course, if if we're just reading John for John, Okay, he's not suggesting in any way that this is a Sabbath. So from his perspective writing it, he thinks this is all cool. So there's that. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to mention something, though. You mentioned the idea of, of you know, humility and you lowering yourself, elevating others. And this, it's such an important picture about humility. I, I don't know. Pick something. Let's say that you're, uh, maybe you're really super smart. What's a, what's a big IQ, Samuel? It's like 150. Is that a good IQ? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Say you got 150 IQ, and you go, well, you know, I want to be humble. So you walk around, you know, going, well, you know, I'm kind of dumb, so. (laughs) Okay, no, that's that's false humility. That's kind of, well, that's dumb. (laughs) You, in fact, are dumb. (laughs) But uh, humility, in in the biblical sense, the way we see it, it is not so much lowering yourself especially like in a false way like like trying to make something that's not even true true but but it's the idea of elevating others you can have 150 IQ and you can purposely raise others up and make them feel smart intelligent wise whatever word you want to put in there and, and so in that sense, you are lowering yourself. You're not the one who looks smart. 
you're elevating others so that they could. And, and you could apply this in just a, a, a million different ways. I, I just picked, you know, IQ or something as an example. So true humility isn't about beating yourself down. True humility is about raising others up. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it's a great point. Thought I'd highlight it. Definitely. So anything else? Nope. All right. We're going to continue in John, and now we're looking at chapter 13, verses 6 through 11. This is, this is good. Here we go. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, not all of you are clean. (laughs) Okay, so Peter, and maybe we should say, of course, (laughs) Doesn't like what's going on. He's the one who's going to speak up about it. He knows who Jesus is, at least pretty much, okay? And, you know, in his mind, he simply won't allow it, right? (laughs) It's it's great. And and John's language here is, it's kind of strange. Uh, There's some doubling up on the words. You can't see it in your English version, most likely. Maybe something like Young's Literal had it or something. I don't know. But if you were looking at the Greek and you were trying to be more literal, it could be translated something more like, you shall never wash my feet forever. Which, <laughs> you know, again, it's kind of redundant. But, but what does it do? It helps you understand. Peter's trying to make a point. Ain't going to happen. No way. No how. Never. And how can you not like Peter? Come on. Come on. So... He does that, but Jesus, well, he comes back. He explains a little bit, and he lets Peter know, listen, you don't understand yet. You're going to understand later. You will. But he tells Peter, listen, if you don't allow me to do this, you're not going to have any share with me, like no share with Jesus. And now there's a couple ways you could think of this. If we think of it, and, and there's different ways it's translated. So if we think of it in language like no share with Jesus, well, you might think of things like the promises, the inheritance, you know, being his brethren. You won't share in those things. Okay, that's a pretty strong image, good image. Another translation popular would be something, you will have no part in Jesus, no part in him. And so in that you might think of terms more like along the lines of unity 
or, or faithfulness, loyalty in him, with him, that kind of thing. But again, that's just another aspect of being his brethren. And so he's telling Peter, look, if you want to participate in all the goodness, whether that is promises and inheritance or unity, all of those things, you need to go along with the program here. So Peter listens, and what does he do? He jumps straight to the opposite extreme. Well, hey, if you're going to wash my feet, you may as well wash my head and my hands too. And, and this, it, it's an interesting comeback just on its face, but I think this is super interesting, and let's talk about why. So we could look at this a couple of different ways. First, if we were to look in terms of, and, and you saw how Jesus mentioned this in the text, if we're looking at it in terms of cleanliness and bathing, well, that has, you know, its own sort of attributes there. And we're going to come back to that, because since Jesus addressed it, we'll address it separately. But another way we could look at it is in terms of an Old Testament story. There's a rather famous tr- troublemaker called Jezebel. Ring a bell, Samuel? Does it ring a Jezebel? <laughs> oh, nice. Ouch. <laughs> When she is finally killed, there's a very interesting addendum. This is from 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 35. Samuel, why don't you go ahead and read it? But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Yeah. Now, I'm very sorry. I'm about to be graphic, as if 2 Kings wasn't enough. But why did they only find those pieces of her? It was because the dogs had eaten the rest of her. Now, Samuel, what do we know about dogs and their eating habits? Uh, they're not too picky. They'll eat about anything that is in front of them. Yeah, if it's like nasty and rotten and horrible and gross, buddy, a dog is all over that. You know what I mean? And so think about that. Think what's being said. The dogs were how do I say this? Her head, her hands, her feet, they were unappealing, unattractive, unappetizing, even to the dogs that had eaten the rest of her. That's a really graphic image, not just graphic in the gross sense, but like, wow, that 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 is an image to have in your head. Wow. Now, side note, we might say that the feet represent the part of us that leads us away from God. It's like our own path, if you will. Of course, our feet, you know, that's how we walk the righteous path also. But as a general rule, we're humans, we mess up. It's, it's what leads us away from God. The hands, we could say that they represent the actual sin that we do. Sin isn't sin until you actually do something as a, as a general rule. And so the hands represent that. And then the head, well, that represents where sin originates or where it is conceived. And so you put that together, the head, hands, and feet, these are all of the, how do you say it? These are all the parts that that are against God, uh, an enemy of God, lead us away from God, that kind of stuff. So we could say maybe Peter is, is referring back to Jezebel. And so what maybe Peter is doing is presenting himself 
as completely unclean. Isn't that a cool picture? Hmm. I mean, we could think that if, if Peter's, you know, being a, a real student of his of his Bible, he's unworthy in every way to have Jesus wash his feet. In fact, it is so ridiculous that Peter proclaims that Jesus needs to wash all of his unclean parts, his head, hands, and feet. Uh, if he's going to wash any unclean part, you may as well do it all. And again, I, how can you not like Peter? Huh? He's got chutzpah. Yeah, yeah. Now, do we know that that's what was going on in Peter's brain? No. And in fact, you know, we got to go back to the text. Jesus doesn't address it that way at all. Jesus actually addresses it more like from the the cleanliness, bathing kind of option, which is a little weird, but whatever. Jesus is, and, and I don't know, maybe, uh, let me recount. Maybe he's kind of addressing both things, right? Maybe he's, he's addressing the bathing, the physical part, and the making clean, the spiritual part. So, so here, listen, he says, okay, I'm going to paraphrase. Hey, it, if you've had a bath, you don't need to wash. There's some pretty pretty good uh, wisdom there, right, Samuel? <laughs> you are clean. And then think about, again, culturally, except for your feet. If you've gotten up and walked anywhere, like around your house, from, from where you washed, back home, you know what I'm saying? It's dusty. Your feet are open. Okay, yeah, okay, your feet, they need to be rinsed. That's a normal thing. But then Jesus adds this second little bit. He says, and you are clean. So he says both things. You don't need to wash, and he says you are clean, completely clean. So very interesting. And and you could say that he has moved from the physical to the spiritual. Jesus declares that Peter is indeed clean, not just in the washing and bathing sense, but in in, uh, the spiritual sense as well. And in fact, all of the apostles are. They're all clean except for one. Now, Jesus's phrasing is, not every one of you is clean, but as the story continues and as we look backwards on it, it's easy to understand. He, he is referring to all of them are clean except one, and that is Judas. Now, John adds that Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him, and that that's who Jesus was referring to. So John sort of he, he clears it up for us. And, and it also explains even why Jesus said this out loud, you know, so that they would know. So anyway, there's all of that. What do you think about that stuff, Samuel? I think it's good. I like it. I do have maybe another allusion to an Old Testament story with the Ooh. washing of feet. It's probably right so much more of a stretch than yours i like yours much better but hey you know what we've (laughs) got to stay physically fit and stretching is a part of it so go buddy (laughs) um well so one of the things i researched um in the in the world of judaism with the washing of feet if we go back to exodus uh, i think the specific reference is exodus chapter 30 verses 18 through 20 this is a commandment to the priest within the tabernacle system that is being established by God. But priest 
were required to wash their hands and their feet before service in the temple. And you may be thinking, okay, Samuel, why is that important? Like, what does that have to do with anything? Well, earlier in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, God is telling the entire nation, that verse says, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Um, So, in some ways, you could see that well, I mean, that was the whole point of what priests were supposed to do. They were supposed to model holy and righteous living before God in those holy spaces and in whatever ways and context that common people could emulate that. They're supposed to go out into their own livelihoods and be a priest to uh, represent God to the rest of the world. And so yeah, in in some ways you have this Jesus who... Later in the New Testament in Hebrews, we we read that he is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is a priest in the spiritual sense. Yeah. Like he's asking, or maybe he's commissioning his disciples by washing their feet to say, like, now you go be priest to the world to show them this spiritual reality that I'm about to fulfill tomorrow. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's maybe a little sci-fi, but I there in my head there's a maybe a few connections, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really good. Really good. And you reminded me of something else related, I hope. I think it's I can't remember exactly where it's in uh, I think it's in one of Peter's books, whatever, but it mentions that thing the kingdom of priests and of course like it depends on where you've going to church and all those kind of things. But it's pretty common to hear people say, we're a kingdom of priests, right? We're, we're a kingdom of priests. And that imagery that you brought up, brought up is so good. You got to picture the nation of Israel. And, and in some sense, like when they were in the desert, they actually lived in a very uh, specifically uh, shaped camp. Uh, it was a little bit different in the land, but the same kind of idea. But that image that you painted is so good. God gave them the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, so that the rest of the nation could see what living before him in righteousness looked like. But then the nation of Israel was supposed to see that and then emulate that, you know, learn from it and emulate that. So the nation of Israel was then supposed to be that kingdom of priests. Well, how did that work? Well, Israel was like the priesthood to the rest of the nations. They were supposed to be able to look on Israel, see what it is to live in righteousness before God, and then they could emulate that. That part never worked out all that well, but that's the imagery that you see. And so that directly ties to us today because we also are supposed to be living in righteousness to the best of our ability so that the world can see it and and be drawn to it and God and, and whatever. I, I love that image, so I'm glad you brought it up. Sweet. All right. Well, Samuel, we have burned another hour. You, uh, <laughs> you ready to shut this thing down? I believe so. All right, let's be done. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. 
and be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.